0: Acts sixteen six through 15. Paul was on a second missionary journey, and Timothy had joined Paul and Silas while they were in Lystra. Starting in verse 6, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Tro- down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who, heard, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And the church was born in Philippi.
1: Philippians chapter 1. Starting verse 1 today, we're going to walk through this book. That's what we do. If you're visiting with us, we, we walk through books of the Bible for the most part. The last few weeks we've been dealing with another topic, but... Typically, we walk through books of the Bible. That's our kind of our default here. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, as Morgan said earlier, started the church at Philippi. And he read for us how Lydia and her household came to faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized. But we didn't read the rest of the story. And the rest of the story goes that there's a a little slave girl that, was set free. And she was used to telling fortunes and when her owners realized that the demons were cast out of her and their fortunes were lost, they turned against Paul and his ministry team and they were beaten and thrown into prison that evening as they were singing hymns praising God the doors of that jail were open and their shackles were loose they then had an opportunity to share the gospel with a Philippian jailer and he too came to faith in Christ along with his household and that was the first church started in Europe Paul visited Philippi again on his third missionary journey started the church on the second missionary journey on his third missionary journey he visited that church briefly which was his habit And now he writes this letter to the Philippian church from a Roman prison and From that Roman prison he'd also written letters to the Ephesian believers to the Colossians and then also to Philemon It had been those had been delivered by Tychicus as their destinations were near one another but this letter was delivered by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had come to Rome to deliver some money to Paul from the church at Philippi. And during that time, he became ill. So his, this letter was delayed a, a bit. But that's kind of the story of how the, the church started and, and the conditions surrounding the church. Let's talk about that for a second. If you're taking notes, it, it's be good. I, I encourage people to take notes because you'll, you're liable to learn something. And you're, if you're a believer now, you're going to be a believer until you die. And for some of you, that might be some years and so you may have an opportunity to study this book and to teach this book to someone else. I'd encourage you, I think, just to in a good steward of your time, to take some notes. But what, what's what's the condition surrounding the church there at Philippi? It was, a, it was a Gentile church. As you read through the letter, and I encourage you to do that, if you haven't already, to read through this letter over the next few weeks and months, just to kind of get familiar with it. But it was, it was a Gentile church. No Old Testament quotations here, and, and there was... No synagogue there. As Paul came to Philippi on on the Sabbath, his habit was to go to the synagogue where there was no synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men in order for there to be a synagogue. There's no synagogue there, signifying probably few Jews there. And so he goes to a place of prayer by a river where he meets Lydia. And it's a poor church. They didn't have much, but yet this church is known for its generosity. They had been supporting Paul since... The church's inception. There's also persecution taking place there. We know Paul and Silas; they were beaten and in prison. And 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 we'll read as we study that these Philippians were suffering persecution as well. There's also some false teachers that are influencing the church. Paul will address those Judaizers in chapter three. There's also a couple a couple women who are feuding here in the church. But overall, the church is an obedient church a church that loves the Lord and had been very good to Paul and as, as we study this letter you'll you'll see even today this this letter reveals a deep love between Paul and the church Paul is their spiritual father he started the church and and the church has had, had been supporting Paul even though they didn't have much they're supporting him financially sacrificially and there's a sweet fellowship between them in fact that uh, that word for fellowship or partnership, as it may say in, in your translation, is used six times in this letter. But this fellowship is a result of, of their common encounter with and commitment to the gospel. They're bound together um, by a great cause, to, and that causes to be, uh, to continue to be changed by, to be motivated by, and to propagate the good news of Jesus Christ. And You might ask, well, what's the purpose in him writing this letter? Well, there's several things that he's trying to accomplish. First is to express his appreciation for their generosity. Just tell them, thank you. Man, you've been awesome to me, and I appreciate the money. Also to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus had become ill, so he wants to explain that. He also wants to tell them that he'll be shortly sending Timothy and to expect him uh, arriving soon. Also, just to catch up on how he was doing because they loved him greatly and he wanted them to know. He also is going to warn them of the the false teachers that are there and then he's going to urge them to stand firm and be united with one purpose. And and sometimes as we're studying these books, some of you ask us, well, Pastor, what are we going to study next? What book are we studying? You think, well, do you just like draw them out of a hat? How do you choose what book you're teaching? Well, a lot goes into that. But, But maybe... I can say, how can we benefit, how can Beaver Baptist Church benefit from studying Philippians? A couple things. And this is one of the reasons we're studying this book at this particular time. Is we need to learn how to have joy amidst life's difficulties. And some of us are going through difficult times in our life, maybe in our family, maybe with health, but we have several that are going through difficult times and we need Joy. And what we're going to see as we study this book, we see a joyful Paul. He went through great difficulties, yet he had this joy in the Lord. Also, Paul, he's not delighting in the blessings as much as he's delighting in the giver of those blessings. In fact, he says, I count everything else like garbage. Everything in life is like garbage to me compared to just knowing Christ. And that's his goal in life. He just wants to know Jesus, and he points us to Christ in fact, Christ's name is is used some forty times in this in this short book in these few chapters. So he's pointing us to Christ, much like we're going to do today. When he finished studying this this passage, we're going to take the Lord's supper, and we're going to we're going to be pointed to Jesus. And I think that's always a good thing. So let's read Philippians chapter one, verses one through eleven. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Several things, four things I want to point out to you as we move through this text. First thing is the joy of the gospel is not dependent on our circumstances. The joy of the gospel is not dependent on our circumstances. It begins, it, 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 kind of your typical greeting that he usually uses, Kevin, with, with, with his letters. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, he's Paul. He's not Saul. You know, Paul had been changed by the power of the gospel, hadn't he? And he's writing this some 10 years after starting the church there, but he includes Timothy as a co-author. And notice how he describes him. I mean, if you and I had started this church and we'd been... Used by the Lord like Paul, we might be tempted to want to be somebody of significance. I mean, Paul, he didn't say that he's the lead church planner, he's the executive pastor, or he's the apostle to the Gentiles with a capital A. No, he's he's a humble bond slave. He says he's a servant. That's how he describes himself. I'm just a servant who spends all his energy and all his time trying to please his master. That's what Paul wanted to be known as, a servant of the Lord. He and Timothy, his son in the faith, they're both servants. It made me think of John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's attitude? I mean, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Prophets are pretty important people in the Bible. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. All the miraculous things that took place with his birth, and, but yet... What did John the Baptist say? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's Paul. That's his attitude, isn't it? He wanted to be humble, uh, uh, Want to be known as a servant of the Lord. And he writes to all the believers here in Philippi, not just the leaders, not just the pastors and deacons, but to, to all, to the church. And he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very common a greeting, but grace was a common Gentile greeting. They they said that often, and then peace is a common Jewish greeting that they would often say. But the un- unrepentant Gentiles, Aiden, they wouldn't really understand Paul's meaning. I mean, he, he's not saying grace. It's like saying, "Hey, how you doing? Hello, good to see you." Those kind of things. They wouldn't really understand. Paul's meaning the unrepentant Gentiles wouldn't. But Paul, what he means is God's grace be with you. That's what that means. And this grace is always from God and it's always unmerited. It's always unearned. It's just given by God. So you couple those together, we can say maybe because of what God has done for us in Christ, been gracious, we can have peace. Look at verse 3. He's thankful to God as he remembers the Philippians. It's kind of like every time he thinks about them, he just, he's just thankful. There's this, um, it just leads Paul to, to instinctively give thanks to the Lord when he thinks about the Philippians. And think about that. Thankful people, they're not entitled people. People have thankful hearts, they don't take things for granted. Paul has a thankful heart. I I want to ask you, are you thankful? He said, I thank my God every time I think about you and all my remembrance of you. Every time I think about you, I'm thankful to the Lord. Are you thankful? When you think of certain people, are there certain people that God has put in your life that you're thankful for? When you think of them, do you kind of smile and, and give thanks to the Lord? Or maybe a better question is, are you a person that when others think of you, they give thanks for you? That's probably a better question. Do you live your life in such a way of serving people, treating people so rightly and so sweetly that when they think of you, they give thanks to God for you? I have several that come to my mind right right now in our church that the Lord uses them in my life and uses them to encourage me and challenge me and help me. And I I just give thanks to the Lord for them all the time as they come to my attention. Look at verse 4. He's thankful to God, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, joy is a theme of the book. It's not the main point of the book, but it's one of the themes there. In fact, if you're reading through the book, I don't know, my, my, in my Bible, I mark and write in my Bible a lot. But I, every time I see the word joy or rejoice, I, I put a, a certain color around it. So it kind of sticks out. I would encourage you to do the same, Mark, that every time you see joy or rejoice. It's used over and over here. I was thinking about this book you know just talking about how can we benefit from it I think it I think it's very significant for us today I was thinking about it in America and in other parts maybe the western culture we're experiencing prosperity and pleasures and leisure like we've never experienced it before like I was just thinking I was talking to someone recently about those talking about all the cruises they've been on you know when I was growing up I'm like who goes on a cruise now it's like that's the spring break and fall break everybody's cruising and going on things. I've never been on one yet, but we're, we're, we're able to enjoy ourselves and vacation and do all these things it's more than we ever have before. But instead of being satisfied and people being happier, it seems that people are less happy and less satisfied than ever before. I mean, watch the news. And, and I don't have a a, a stat for this, but I, I was really interested in like what percentage of our US population is on some type of psychotropic medicine helping them with depression and anger and anxiety yeah, we're, we're less satisfied We're less healthy We have less joy maybe than we've ever had. I think people are, are grasping for something right and all the money the The notoriety the success the leisure all the weeks of vacation. They can't fill the void there's a lacking of, of joy in, in our lives as a, as a culture. But Paul, he's full of it, isn't he? And he didn't have everything going for him. In fact, everything from a worldly perspective is going against him. He's in prison. Let me kind of fill you in on what's happened to Paul since the last time um, he saw the Philippians. On his third missionary journey, he saw them. Um, and then he's in Jerusalem this is a few years before he wrote this letter and, and you can read this in the book of Acts but Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple that was a no no you know he had to court the Gentile but then there's an, a section that the Gentiles couldn't enter he was accused of, of doing that and as a result he's dragged to the street and he, he, he was nearly lynched by the Jews he was put in prison he narrowly escaped a flogging by pleading his Roman citizenship and even 40 Jews, or 40 Jews who took a vow, they wouldn't eat until they saw Paul dead. I mean, he barely escapes with his life. Eventually, he's taken to Caesarea, where he spends two years in prison waiting for trial. And he eventually appeals to Caesar. He's put on a ship and sent to Rome. But on the journey, guess what happens? He's shipwrecked. And he washes up on an island. Then he's bitten by a poisonous snake getting better and better for old paul isn't it finally he ends up in rome and he gets to rome but guess what he's in shackled and he's, he's on a house arrest he's waiting this uncertain decision from a half crazy earthly king you know it just doesn't get any better for old paul but that's what's going on with paul but yet he has joy and i'm just so excited to go through this book because i want some of that learn how to fight for joy and have joy like paul He has a nevertheless attitude. Yeah, all this stuff is going terribly for me from a worldly perspective, but nevertheless, I've got joy in the Lord. So there's the joy of the gospel is not dependent on our circumstances. The second thing I see in this text is the fellowship of the gospel. There's a common experience, a common motivation, a common purpose that Paul and this church have. Look at verse 5. He says, always in my prayer mind for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now the first day means when, from the time they became a church. From the time they became a church up until that, that, that moment. But Paul is so thankful for, to God for the Philippians. He has joy, but notice his thankfulness is because of this partnership, this fellowship. Well, what does that mean? Well, I've already mentioned that already. They're, they have something in common, and, and what they have in common is the gospel. I mean, you, you can have a partnership with somebody and you not have anything in common. We talked about this a lot at our church. You can have a partnership with somebody and have nothing in, really in common on the outside. You can be a different ethnic group, different socioeconomic group, different backgrounds, speak a different language, but yet there's something that bonds you together that makes you a, a partner. Well, Paul and this church, they have the gospel in common. They had all experienced the power of the gospel. Paul, on the road to Damascus, he was saved. Transformed. Lydia, by the riverside on that Sabbath day morning, during a prayer meeting, she was saved. She had an encounter with the gospel. The Philippian jailer, after the earthquake, he had an experience with the gospel. He was confronted with the gospel and he surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. They all had this miraculous experience after hearing the gospel and bound them together and they're motivated by the gospel what do they want to do they've experienced that they've been set free and what do they do they want to see other people set free they're motivated they want to share the gospel this is what the lord's done for me i it's so good i want i want everybody to experience it all right so they, they partner with Paul. They had this common bond, this common experience. They're motivated. They're doing the same thing. They have the same goal in life to see people saved and God glorified. And so what are they doing? They're partnering with Paul. They're sending him money. Even though they don't have anything, they just have peanuts. They're sharing those peanuts with Paul, supporting him on his missionary journeys. And what happens when you're bo- bound together, you have something in common, what happens you find yourself having affection for him. I've shared this story before. I was in our first city in China, it was a very third world city, and we didn't see very many um, English speakers and our teammates, which we love, we love, some of our best friends in the world, and they were so good, the Lord really used them in my life, so don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but they're they're not from the South. And some of you, you might not be from South, you might be Yankees, and that's okay, we're gonna love you like crazy, okay? Um, you can't help it, right? Um, but these, these teammates, they were from the north. I mean, upstate New York, Wisconsin, Colorado, and I just love them. They're some of my great friends in, in all the world. When I have issues in life, I go to them still today. But, but our culture's just different. And sometimes just communicating, you know, is a little, little more work. We're in this, this little city we're, that we're in, and we're, we're with our teammates, and, and like I said, they're awesome, and I love them, and that God really used in my life. But I met this guy. And he's from Fayetteville, Arkansas. And man, I, I, I said, something, said something to him, because where we were, you didn't see very many Caucasian folks. And when you see him, you kind of, you, you know, because we were one of, you know, four or five foreigners in this little city. And I see this guy, and I go up to him, and I said, hey, and he said, hey, or something. I just automatically just connected, because he was like, his, his accent is stronger than mine. Now, like he's just a southern drawl. And so we got to talking. Well, he's the, the sports writer for the University of Arkansas. Yeah, suey pig, right? And we began to talk, and we talked for an hour with my team. I didn't know it, but our teammates are kind of waiting on me, and finally they're like, Shane, we got to go. And, and I said, oh, I'm saying, and we, we said goodbyes. He was there actually doing, on a, a mission trip. They were going out to this village out in the sticks to do some ministry. But my, my supervisor, like I said, awesome guy, but he's like, man, it's like you met this long-lost family member or something. I said, "Man, yeah, we just had a good time talking, and uh, we got to talk football, and, and anyway, we just got to talk all things southern." But what was it? We just had something in common, this southern culture, and it just—we just for uh, you know an hour, we just kind of bonded, you know. And it doesn't take much to bond us together. We have something in common, but when we have the gospel in common, that that bonding is even more intense. See, when someone stands up here and they uh, uphold the gospel before your eyes, it creates this, this, this affection of Christ in your heart for them. And that's why we do on Sunday mornings oftentimes, you know, every few weeks we do His story, my story. And we, somebody in our church shares their story. And what does that do? When they share their story, you know what it does? It allows you to connect with them a little bit. It allows you to get to know them a little bit, hear the gospel, but also you just kind of bond with them. It's something supernatural happens, I think. When we see another person love the gospel, it raises our affections for them. And, and in fact, I think Paul, he sees those affections we have for our brothers and sisters who love the gospel as the very affection of Christ in us. That's what the gospel does. It just bonds people together with the love of Christ and the purpose of Christ, and it's so sweet. You know, it's like some of us, we just love each other so much, and we don't have anything in common other than Jesus. But it's just just powerful, right? There's a fellowship. There's a partnership, and it's the gospel. Third thing I want us to see from our text this morning, verse 6, the the continuous work, the continuous work of the gospel, what we call perseverance of the saints. Look at verse 6. So Paul is so thankful for the Philippians. He's thankful for their partnership. It gives Paul joy to have them as gospel partners, But it also gives him joy and calls him to be thankful because salvation is God's work. Look at verse 6. It's something some of you, the first many of you have memorized. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, because it's God's work and not our work or the Philippians' work. We know that the saints of God will persevere in their faith. Salvation is a, a work of the sovereign God from start to finish. I mean, think about it. We all have clay feet. That means we're sinners, right? We blow it. We do stupid stuff. We're selfish. We say things we shouldn't. We don't do things we should, right? We're lazy. That's what I mean by clay feet. We just we fall and fail, right? We disappoint people. And Paul knew that the Philippians, they would be persecuted and they're going to struggle with the effects of false teachers. Knew that these young believers, they're going to battle with old sin, you know, when you're saved and it seems like sometimes you, like, get over something, but then it comes back to bite you. But then there's new sins that come along that we struggle with, you know, as new relationships come along in your life. So he knew that, that these believers in Philippi, they're going to struggle. But Paul had a confidence that they would persevere in their faith. And what was that confidence? Was it that the Philippians were just really disciplined? You know, they got up at 4.30 and had their quiet time every morning. Is it because they were, they loved Paul so much What was it that gave Paul confidence? It wasn't any of those things. What gave Paul confidence was God. God was Paul's confidence. God's work of salvation in the Philippians was the ground of Paul's confidence that they would be glorified. Eventually, they're going to be like Jesus. Yeah, they look like they're a mess, and some of us, we can look at our lives like that, right? They're just a mess. They love Jesus, but they're just a mess, right? But one day, they're going to be like Christ, Legan Duncan. He he talks about John Newton and the the hymn "Amazing Grace," and he says he quotes part of the lyrics: "Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come." See, you're singing it, Blake's singing it over here, right? Jenny's singing it. Grace has brought me safe thus far. And so what's the next line? Yeah, Jenny. She Jenny. Don't ever never get into like this hymn, like battle of like knowing the hymns. You'll lose. Because Jenny knows all the hymns, right, and all the words, right? Yeah, grace has brought me safe this far, and now I'll take it from there, right? And now I got it. I'll take it from here. No, it's not now I'll take it from here. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So it's not like God does a little bit, and then we've got to take it ourselves and get, get it done ourselves. No, God's got to do all of it. He's got to save us and then he's got to sanctify us, right? It starts with God and it ends with God. Because if it doesn't end with God, it's ended. We won't persevere. This is what Paul is is celebrating. He's saying, look, Philippians, I I see you and and I can be joyful. Even I know you're going to... still sin and struggle and you're going to do things that you shouldn't do and you're going to struggle because the, the enemy, the, the devil's like a roaring lion looking like looking for one of you to devour. You're going to struggle at times. But I can be joyful and thankful and confident because it's God who's at work in you. See, God initiates salvation but, but he works till the very end, till we're like Christ. Glorified, just like him. He'll finish the work. He starts it, he'll finish it. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, 29 and 30, we we see this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Some of you get wigged out when you talk about predestination. I don't believe in predestination. Yes, you do. Don't ever say that. You don't understand what it means, maybe, but don't say you don't believe in it. Don't say you're not predestined unless you're lost. No, if you're a believer, you're predestined. You might not understand and That's okay. We'll talk about it. I can can help you with that, maybe. For, for, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that, that glorified means made us like Christ. Man, that just gives me so much hope. Because some days I'm just a mess. And I blow it, and I just do stupid stuff. and I get mad, and I, I don't even, sometimes I don't even know why. You ever get mad and you don't even know why? You're mad at something, you don't even know why, you're just mad? Yeah, it's just like, why am I that terrible? But I just am. But God's not through with me. He's still working, and he's still making me like him, and one day I'm going to be like him. And one day I'm going to be in glory, and I'm not going to worry about being selfish or prideful. I'm not going to get mad at all. I'm going to be able to give him glory like I should, unhindered. And that's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. This work that God is doing, it's a good work. Think about the Philippian believers, and and for us as well. God's grace works in us to make us who were once bad people to be better people. To make us people who once didn't care anything about the Lord, now just loves the Lord. It's a good work, Lonnie, because now... Used to, I I really didn't care about being in church and and listening to teaching the Word. And now, now you know what? I want to be around believers and I want to hear God's Word being taught. I want to hear God's Word being sung. It's a good work. Used to, I didn't care about God being glorified. You know what? Now, I pray every day, Lord, help me glorify you. Help me make you look good. Help help me make you look good today. It's a good work he's doing in me and it's good in you. It's a good work he was doing in Philippians and the Philippian believers. It's an unfinished work. We don't have to go there, do we? We know that. Yeah. It's an unfinished work. He's got a lot of work to do still. But it's a good work, and it's a certain work. It's a certain work because God always finishes what he starts. How many of you, do you have any projects around the house that you started you just hadn't finished? Uh Uh-oh. Don't do that. The wives always look at the husbands. I'm looking at wives, and they're, they're doing this, and they want to do that. Yeah, you've got these projects you're supposed to do. This is kind of left undone. That's who we are. That's what we do. God doesn't do that. God's not like that. He starts something. He finishes it. He's perfect, right? He finishes what he starts. That can't be said of us, but it can be said of the Lord. In heaven, you're going to be more happy than you are now. You're going to be more joyful. You're going to be more complete. But you know what? Believer, you'll not be more secure than you are right now. Because the work that God began in you, he's going to finish. Isn't that something? It's a certain work. It's a perfect work. One day you're going to be perfect like Jesus because God doesn't make garbage and he doesn't halfway. I always say half not That's probably a bad thing to say from the pulpit. I don't even know if that's a bad word. You know, everybody, every family's different. You know, like we don't say one word. We say bottom. You know, this is your bottom. We don't say the other word. So everybody's family's different, you know. But he didn't halfway do anything. He doesn't. I was thinking about this. What if there, think about, what if there's two of you? Would that be a good thing? I mean, think about some people you work with. You know, you got your, your coworker that really doesn't do a whole lot of work and you don't know why they're still working there. What if there's like a prototype of that person, another one of them, you know, or, or maybe kids, the the, the the student, the classmate at school that's really a jerk and really caused a lot of problems. What if there's two of that person, right? What if there's two of you would that be a would that be a, a good thing What if there are more prototypes replicas of Jesus Think about that James Montgomery Boyce, he says, think of it this way. God is so delighted with Jesus that he has called millions of sinful human beings to himself in order that Jesus might reproduce himself in them and that this universe might be populated with millions of Christ-like prototypes. That's what Jesus is doing. Calling sinners, rebellious, terrible people to faith in Christ that we could become like Christ. The process has started and it begins, and it continues during our lifetime and it ends with us being like him in glory. Verse seven and eight, kind of goes with the fellowship, the the partnership. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, right? Partners. We're, 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 we have fellowship together, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The Philippians, they were partners with Paul. They were there with him, feeling his pain, helping them. They're going through persecution as well. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And look at this prayer God's going to make us like Jesus, but what's the means to the end? How are we going to become like Jesus? Well, some of it has to do with prayer. Look at verse 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and, and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's a prayer. It's this beautiful prayer for the church. And he asked that your love would grow. If the Philippians, who were loving people, needed to grow in love, we probably do Need to as well, right? I mean, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mentioned that in our confession time. Love your neighbor as yourself. We need to grow in that, don't we? Yeah, we, we need to, our love to grow. And then he talks about growth in knowledge. That's the second part of this prayer. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of the truth. Frank Sheed, he says, A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. Have you ever heard that before? It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Listen to this. The love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than the knowledge of God. But if a man loves God, knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. So what do we do? Kaylee, we read the Bible. because That's how we know God more. How do we grow in our knowledge of God? We read the study of the scriptures. Paul was super passionate that his converts, these Philippians, increase in the knowledge of God. In fact, if you know someone who has a superficial love for God, it's a sure sign that they have a superficial knowledge of God. They go hand in hand. Praise that they would grow in knowledge, grow in love, grow in knowledge. They go hand in hand. I mean, why do we, why do we study the scriptures? So we can learn the truth, which results in us loving more, being more loving because God is love, right? First Timothy 1, five. The aim of our charge, Paul tells Timothy, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That, the aim of our charge, that, that's teaching, right? That, the, the goal of our instruction, right? How do we gain knowledge? We gain more knowledge so we can love God. More And then lastly, he, he asked that they would grow in discernment, right? Making good decisions, being wise, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, becoming more like Jesus. So it's interesting. We have this prayer here. How do we, how do we become more like Jesus? We're, well, it, God does it. He's going to make us like Christ. It's a done deal. It's just going to take some time. But what's the means to, to an end? God uses the prayers of his people, and Paul's praying that they would grow in knowledge, grow in love, grow in discernment, that it would become excellent, to become Christ-like. Yeah, the prayer is a means to that end. So what is the application? Well, I would say we need more joy. You need more joy in your life? I think so. We need more joy. We, we need a nevertheless attitude. Some of us are going through it right now. We need a nevertheless attitude. Despite our circumstances, we need to have joy. So let's be praying that that would happen. I'm excited about going through this book so we can learn how to fight for joy and have joy and be more joyful. Who are you partnered with? Talked about this partner, this fellowship. Maybe some of you, you've been visiting churches. I know some of you have been coming for a while. You need, maybe the Lord wants you to lock arms with somebody. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's time that you lock arms with us and you can talk to me about how to do that and, and, and fellowship, have that fellowship and have that partnership where we're saying, yeah, we have a common goal and a common vision and we're going to live our lives together. And I would say, pray this sweet prayer for one another. Asking God to grow our love for Him as we know Him better. That we'll become more like Jesus. And there's other application points that you can, you'll can discuss in your small group next week. But that gets us started, Philippians chapter 1. I hope you're excited. I hope you'll be prayerful for me as I prepare and, and study. Pray this week for Morgan. He'll be preaching the next text um, next week. Excited about that. We come to the most important part of our service, I think, and that's the Lord's Supper. Some of you are putting your Bibles away, and you can do that. I'm going to read for you. If, if you want to turn, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Thank you, brother. If you're a, a believer, let me tell you. If you're a believer and you've been baptized and uh, you want to take the Lord's Supper, we have open communion here at our church, and we'll encourage you to do that. I encourage you. If you're not a believer, don't take it. If you have a child and they Uh, haven't been baptized, made a profession of faith, I would ask you to wait um, on that. This is for believers. This is for people who've made a profession of faith, who've been baptized. They've made a declaration that they want to follow Jesus, and it's a family meal. And so we want to encourage you to come and be a part of this meal with us. We take the Lord's Supper because it's commanded. We're believers. At our church, we take it once a month. There's no um, you can take it more, too frequently or not frequently enough we do at our church we do, we do it once a month kind of a good rhythm for us but it's for believers and what's going to happen is I'm going to read some scripture and, and teach a, a moment about this and then we'll take it together we'll take the bread together and we'll give thanks for the body of Christ which the bread represents and we'll take it together and then we'll take the cup and we'll give thanks for the blood of Christ, which the juice represents, and we'll take it together after I give thanks. We'll do this all together, okay? If you're visiting with us and you're not sure how we do that, I always, I always, I always feel uncomfortable when I go to church, and then you just kind of have to watch what everybody else is doing. Um, so I want to give you clear instruction. Let's, let me read this text for you. And it's a very solemn time. It's not a time to, to play. We've already had confession time. We've before the Lord confessed sin. We've examined our hearts, Caleb. And we sitting in a play, talk time, mess around time. This is a serious, very somber, serious moment. And if you're you're not serious about it, you need to be. But it's a wonderful time, too. When we leave here, we're going to be encouraged uh, because we're focusing on Christ and his sacrifice for you. Luke chapter 22, verse 7 through 18. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it they said to him where will you have us prepared? and he said to them behold when you have entered the city a man a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house the teacher says to you where is the guest room where i may eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared prepare it there and they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the passover God providentially led them there. They had multiplied because of the the um, the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised that they would prosper and become a great nation. And seventy went to Egypt, and there were over a million. Four hundred years later, but Pharaoh had oppressed them and wouldn't let them go. God rose uh, Moses and wanted to use him to lead the people out of Egypt. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. So God sent ten judgments upon the people of Egypt so they would know that God is the one true God and that last judgment was the death of the firstborn if you remember that night they took a year old lamb unblemished and they were to sacrifice that lamb and take the blood and put over their doorpost because God was coming through Egypt and all of those that didn't have the blood over the doorpost of their home the firstborn in that family would die. And the Bible tells us that after this happened, there wasn't a home where there was not weeping in all of Egypt. But the Israelites, they had to trust God and they had to obey God. And the head of their household, that's what they did. They took the, that lamb and they put that blood over their doorpost. And because they trusted and obeyed, they were spared the wrath of God. We get to the new covenant. Jesus' last supper, they're celebrating the Passover, which they did every year. It's interesting that Paul, after Jesus was resurrected, sent into the Father, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7 called Christ the Passover lamb. That Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt is just pointing us, directing us towards the, the true Passover lamb who would come and die for the sins of man. And because his body was broken and his blood was shed we too can be spared the wrath of God. And maybe there, some of you are here and you've yet to repent and trust Christ. The Bible tells us that we're sinful. We all rebel against the Lord. We deserve God's wrath, God's worst because we're sinners. The truth of the matter is when we breathe our last, if we're not reconciled to God, if we haven't been forgiven for our sins, if we haven't trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us that we'll be separated from God for all eternity and we'll suffer the wrath of God for all eternity for our sin. But the good news is that God want sinners to be saved and Jesus died he was buried and the Bible tells us three days later he rose from the dead so that we could be justified so that sinners could be justified he showed himself to his disciples he was there with them for some time and then about 40 some odd days later he ascended into heaven but he said one day I'm going to come back and I'll make all things right I'm going to judge I'm going to separate the the." sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. I'm going to take those who love me, who know me, who trust me to be with me forever. For those who have rejected me and lived in rebellion, they'll be suffering the wrath of the Father for all eternity. If you've yet to repent and trust Christ, I want to encourage you to do so. Jesus died for sinners. Christ died for sins the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God First Peter 3 18 if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord I to encourage you to do that if you've got a question about that I'd love to talk to you about that there's many in this room that can talk to you about that as well but I'd love to have that conversation but for us who are believers we're going to take this Lord's Supper we don't take Passover anymore because Christ is a Passover lamb he began something new We call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. And it's a day where we stop, we focus on Christ, we give thanks for His sacrifice for us. And if you have this cup and that this bread, you're saying that you've trusted Christ's work on the cross as your own. And today we celebrate and give thanks for what He's done in your life. Let's get ready to take the supper. Let's take this... Let's take this bread. child proof cups took me a while yeah somebody may have to help you I thought you were pulling a prank on me or something brother you (laughs) gave me one of them dummy cups this uh, this little cracker here it represents the body of Jesus that was broken verse 19 he said and he took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and that means take this eat this in remembrance of me so let's pray and we'll, we'll eat the bread together father we do thank you for Jesus' body that was broken we recognize we trust we know that he came 2,000 years ago he took on flesh and he walked this earth and he He lived rightly. He lived like you want us to. He was our exemplar. and He did everything according to your will. And he didn't deserve to die, Father, but he willingly gave up his life according to your will so that we could be forgiven. And we're thankful for his body. We're thankful for the incarnate Christ. In Jesus' name. Let's eat it together. Remembering the body of Christ that was broken for us. Now let's take the cup. Verse 20, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He tells us to take it in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. Your word tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we all that have this cup, Lord, we... Are saying that we've been forgiven, and it's because of Christ's blood shed for us. Oh, the the blood of Jesus that takes away my sin, so precious. Lord, that blood that covered those doorposts, pointed toward the the blood of Christ that was shed that we could be forgiven, we could be cleansed, made right with you. What a blessing. What a gift. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's drink it together, remembering that this represents the blood of Christ. Today's going to be a good day for you if you have children that are here who are not able to take the Lord's Supper, it's a good day for you to talk to them about what Christ has done for you. Ask them if they too would like to repent and trust Christ. Think about how your life would be different without Jesus. Remember what your life was like before Christ and what He's done for you. We're all a mess at times. Some of us are struggling right now some of us are walking more in obedience than, than others but if we're in Christ we can be sure that he'll make us like Jesus and that's a wonderful hopeful thing I'm glad you're here we've been praying we pray all the time that God would providentially bring who needs to be here here and so we trust that God brought you here and had a work and a, a plan in mind May He accomplish His will in your life. May we be obedient people this week, loving people, praying that God would grow His love in us and for us, love for Him and His love for one another. May we obey Him in all things. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.